Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. This is a short episode that we're releasing ahead of our episode with Mike Whitbread on September 7th. This short is a teaser of where Mike believes geochemistry and our industry need to go. an inner email chain when we're kind of working out the topic that we wanted to discuss on the show and you brought up you know namely just this crossover between classical approaches to interpreting geochemical data and where you believe our industry needs to go where does the industry need to go well we've got to start using all the variables that we're actually collecting right so if you look at um, a standard analytical suite and if you're collecting spectral data on the back of that you might have 250 channels of information that you've got sitting against every sample and uh, and a lot of geos, particularly those that you know have come out of university, and the university sector in Australia is pretty dire. So there's not a lot of training and data analysis, um, and people are, are still looking at copper and maybe gold. And if you, if they've they've read a Dixillotope paper, they might chuck in a few other elements. And if Scott Halley's got to them, which is a good thing, you know, Scott's done uh, a hell of a lot to sell geochemistry into the industry in terms of actually utilising your data. But even, you know, if they're following his workflows, it's still only, you know, maybe touching 10, 15, maybe 20 variables out of their data set, variables being, you know, um, spectral data and elements. And it's clear that we've got to make more use of that information. And 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 when you, I, one of the reasons that I, I put in the, the Jeff Steadman paper was around you know mineral chemistry right as an example of one of the new data types that's coming out uh, core scanning of course is another one and I think that's the June Hills paper talks a little bit to that as well and you've got different data types that had just a voluminous right you've got really dense information and you know often down to a pixel uh, if you're scanning and what are we doing with that uh, often we're aggregating it back up to a very a certain scale that we can manage we try and marry it up with our assaying and then people do that in the end they still only look at a couple of variables out of the file <laughs> so so i guess that's been my mission for a long time and it and it went back in the gas days gas was really uh, a game changer for allowing people to visualize with their data explore their data graphically and that's how a lot of geologists sort of seem to work right with spatial creatures and it sort of allows you to interact with your data and then send it out to your gis or whatever but that that um, and that's got us a certain distance along this path, but we're still using gas now, and it's been, you know, another twenty years since I think uh, uh, IO Global took it from Cargini, um, and we need to be better than that. And and we still um, uh, like we still occasionally catch up with the gas guys and and try and influence the roadmap because we want we wanted to incorporate more machine learning aspects or um, you know different methods of summarizing your data 
distilling down that information and finding out what's important in it. And but it's a work in progress. We're not there yet. And there's and, and we're such a small market for software providers in the mining industry. We like to think we're important, but we're not very important <laughs> at all. Um, there's no one else, right? And so so thank God we've got gas because if we didn't have it, what would we be using? And it, the, the other side to this is that um, with time, companies have probably reduced the number of people relative to the number of rigs they're running or all the information they're collecting. So not only do you have more data, but you've actually got fewer people to deal with it. And something has to give, either the industry stops bothering collecting the information in the first place, which I don't think is where it's going to go, or we find smarter ways of, of dealing with it. And I, so at a high level, I guess, that's that's where I, I think the industry needs to go. Is is that paint a picture or, or do you need me to sort of delve into certain aspects of that a bit more? No, I think that's I think that's what exactly what what I was looking for in, in, in the sense that you know our industry collects a lot of data and there's not enough people to interpret it and also we're not interpreting it in a smart enough way across the large scale. There are people doing great work, but that's not it, it should be more. It, it's kind of in a way you look at our cousins in oil and gas and then you look at what we do and it's embarrassing because we have great data. We should be doing great things. And yet we're just eons behind them. And it's just because at this point, our drill holes don't cost $10 million a hole, but that could be our future. So why not figure it out now? Touch on an interesting point there. Sorry, I think you might have go ahead. No, brief, no. briefly, but um that you know that the value of a drill hole in the oil and gas industry is obviously higher, and and so they make a lot more of the information they collect, but their problems a bit more constrained as well. Whereas whereas in the metals industry, you know we've got so many different ore systems that we're potentially chasing, and often we find things we don't expect. Right, we drill a hole looking for a porphyry and find something else. It's usually the way things go. Um, <laughs> so, but it is true to to say that with time, because of land access and other issues. Uh, it, the drill, the cost of getting to the point of drilling a hole is is much higher now, and and the cost of the assay, which is usually the, one of the last input costs into that, is is actually minimal compared to the, the cost of getting to that point. And so we tend to find that there's less resistance now to collecting assay data on every sample, and people will go, well, why, why would you assay the cover? You know, we're we're looking for mineralisation in the basement. Well, why should, let's just not assay the cover. And I'm going, well, if you find something, what do you think you're going to do with all that cover? You're going to put it on a dump. You're going to need to know what the chemistry of it is. The enviros will thank you for it. And if nothing else, uh, what if you've got dispersion coming from a paleo high sitting laterally in the cover? Uh, wouldn't you want to know about that? And they go, oh, you yeah, know, but it's like, you know, 40 bucks a sample or whatever. Uh, and... You still hit those roadblocks occasionally, but it's becoming less of an issue, I think, uh, because sometimes it takes years to the point of drilling a hole once you've got through all the regu regulatory requirements, right, in certain parts of the world. So, you know, assaying is, is easy. And then I think we're moving to a point, too, where people can see that the logging that geologists are doing uh, without any chemistry data or spectral data to support them or even, even some sort of categorised RGB imagery, right, it's it's terrible, right? It's not very consistent, and and we're getting you know some companies are well ahead of this. So you know, Newcrest probably one of them in course fan, course gain space. They they're well ahead of everyone else 
um, in, in terms of integrating that into their logging workflows. I don't know how they're going now, but at least for a long time, uh, they, they look like they're able to hand a geologist some information to log with, right? And, and you know, that, that's, that's all where we've got to get towards is that you want to be logging intelligently. And, and this is where June Hill's paper kind of, I like it because it, it, what scale are you, are you actually logging? What, prob, what, what is the scale of the problem that you're trying to address? Uh, and I, I was one of those people, I think I hold the record for the longest drill log in Rosebury Mine because I was a trees person, right? I was logging every little texture in the core and I was just going, oh, you can't miss this. And of course it was all rubbish, right? I, I just didn't know. And I had one of the older GAs come to me and goes, congratulations on spending all that time that no one would ever look at. Um, and yeah, you've got the record for the longest log, but if that's a waste of time. You know, we, we can be so much smarter about what we do. If you know what scale you're meant to be operating at, and, and that depends on which part of the, the, the exploration and mining chain you're sitting within, of course. You know, do, is it one metre scale? You know, what, what's boundaries are important to you? If you're doing sequence stratigraphy, you know, how wide do your divisions need to be? Um, if you're looking at mining something and your bench is a certain width, you know, do you look at things within that width or is the width of those benches enough? Like, there's so many different ways to approach it. But that's all the easy stuff if you've got the information in your hands and we, we increasingly do so. So now we've wandered off the topic a little bit there, but uh, I don't know, is that I was any... warned that we would wander, but I think the wandering's great. Yeah, so well, I don't know, where does that, that, does that prompt any ideas or questions from you? I think that in, in the sense that you're talking about June Hill's paper, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, but you know, when you're talking about things like that, you're talking about taking all this, all this data that we have, applying it in ways that are more along the lines of machine learning. I guess that leads me into my second, my second question is really, do you think that now where we are or a little bit in the future, do you think that is this the death of classical geochemistry, this kind of stuff that Scott Haley does? Or do you think that there's an integration of the two? Kind of, I guess just at a high level, like what what do you think, what are you seeing is really the question. Yeah, that's a that's a that is a great question. And and uh, you know, there are times when you can sort of get stressed about the fact that the game is shifting under your feet. Like, you know, you it's um, you know, I I've spent a lot of time looking at bivariate plots, particularly for mobile elements, um, you know, Scott, Scott Halley approach. That's why I think we mentioned his website as one of the, the reads uh, for this yeah. podcast, because he's distilled it down to a fine art. He's also seen everybody's data in the world, right? So um, what, you know, I'd love to have his hard drive. Um, now, you know, he's he's got that down to a fine art, but there's still a little bit of subjectivity around the way that he selects some of his groups and we we can't have we can't all have scott halley working for us right so how do you how do you make sure that you get the best set of eyes on the critical pieces of data if that makes sense and so i think what we'll see is that you if you if you take a black box machine learning whether supervised or unsupervised approaches you end up a lot of the time with a bunch of rubbish right because it's not there's lots of sources of variation in your data What's the sources of change in, in your elements or the ratios of elements? So you need to be able to, to provide a summary of your data that you can apply your classical approaches to. 
So even though we might um, you know, we might play around with UMAP for certain variables, um, we'll we'll plot it back in a 3D UMAP, spin it around, and we can see groups that that pop out of that. But there's so many ways that UMAP can drop out in terms of you know if you change how local or global the structure is that you're looking at within that kind of projection. That in the end, I always go to the scatter plots, the Scott Halley approach, if I can call it that, uh, linked in gas with with something that's got you know bazillions of points in it, with a very large data cloud. I start trying to understand what those data points mean back in something that I can understand in terms of the fundamental variables that feed into it. So, so the short answer to your question <laughs> would be yes. I think we're going to blend the two, but it, but you really can't. Um, I guess distill that high dimensionality type of data and understand it well if you don't have the basics pinned down, if you haven't looked at your probability plots of individual variables before you feed them in. And and those who've those who've gone through, you know, multivariate stats training, you know, in the last 20 years or will be sick to death of being told to to make sure all of the variables, you know, obey certain principles and have certain distribution types before they get fed into certain algorithms. And, and there's a good reason for that. And, and I think we still need to to ground any of them, I guess, the um, data science inverted commas uh, approaches with some basic checks and filters in, in our classical, you know, uh, iogas space, or I can call it that, whether it's a, a scatter plot or a, a trial plot or, or some sort of custom diagram that you've made in there.